God who was and is and is to come. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Before the mountains were brought forth. Forever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, you children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they're like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath. We are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. All our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. With by reason of strength, there are 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. It is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long and have compassion on your servants. O satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Psalm 90, we just read the pivotal verse there, the turning point is verse 12. Up until then, it's speaking of affliction that God allows, judgment, anger, wrath, with good reason, because he's holy and he cannot stand injustice and foolishness and destruction that people do. Verse 12 is the turning point where the wisdom is entering into the people of God, and they're able to say, teach us, Lord, to number our days. We may live 70 years, 80 years of that. That's a principle and a general guideline to show that, after all, even the strongest among us have a limited time on earth. So teach us to number, not our years or months or weeks, days, 
we can take that to heart to mean every moment to apply our hearts unto wisdom or let God's wisdom, God's wisdom dictate how we will use our time. The Bible says, just like the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's written in Ephesians 5, 16, 15 and 16, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools. This is written to God's people, the church. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the other epistles were circulated. People would read the letter that came from the apostle by the Spirit of God. And one of the things they would read is, see that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time. Because the days are evil. There's no time to waste. God says redeem the time. Buy it up. Rescue the time from being wasted. You do it. God says to his people... You see how you use your time. Is it in foolishness? Is it wasting God's energy and resources, all that he's gifted us with, in foolishness? Or is it channeled wisely in this evil age in which we live to make sure we live separate from sin and evil and wasting God's resources, using them exactly for the advancement of his name, his kingdom, his banner? That's Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Similarly, Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 4, 5, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. New King James says, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Every word and every gesture, every tone in every bit of your demeanor, does it draw them to Jesus or is it full of self to say, look at me. I'm a Christian, but look at me. I want you to pay close attention to me. Look at my accomplishments and my holiness and what I've come to do, how great I am. What is actually being conveyed? Defensive measures to make sure I look good using God's name? Or is it channeled to glorify God exclusively? Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Even in testimony, may it never be with any bit of boasting. It's possible to say, I don't boast and yet boast. I'm humble and yet not be humble. It's possible to say, I give all the glory to you, God, and reserve some glory for myself. Achan said, the Lord be glorified. Basically, along with the people of God, but his eye was on the prize of earthly forbidden perishables. 
Achan was using God, sought to use God for personal gain. He was all in the camp and the army of God, but his heart was divided. It was hidden. Nobody knew, not even Joshua. Nobody knew. That's the danger of thinking that we can have some secret loves, even small ones, like a baby cobra. The deception to think that it won't grow to find us out and kill us. Aiken went forward. He's all zealous with the people who seemed, let's go and do this. God's to take over. We're going, let's, let's sing. I'm going up to take the country. God's got an army. I'm part of it. Lots of shouting, lots of stamping the feet. Lots of hallelujahs. But the man was carrying a cobra in his heart. He didn't know that it would kill him. He was deceived. He had an eye. For that which God said, don't touch. And he perished and his household. We need to number our days being taught by God to apply our hearts into wisdom to make sure there's not even a speck of sin. We talk about not having a speck of doubt. Have faith, which is commendable and right before God. We can't have faith without a speck of doubt, having a speck of sin anywhere. And yet, the devil has duped many people who know all about God in Pentecost, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, all these things, but they carry one or more cobras. They think it's just a small one. I like to do this. Little sip won't hurt. Little desire for personal gain won't hurt. God understands. He wants to prosper me. But there's a drive from Lucifer, a drive from Lucifer that causes them to be in the line of Ananias and Sapphira where the fear of God departs while they're praying and while they're worshiping. And saying, we fear you, teach us to fear you, Lord. There's a little cave within the heart reserved for Satan and his goods. The devil has successfully taken many people down, as Paul says in the epistles, who shipwrecked their faith because of covetousness. That's one of the sins which is equated to idolatry. Walk in wisdom, redeeming the time, for the days are evil. That means evil is everywhere. Evil will try to get into you and your house, Christian. Evil will try to get into you and your house. By the way, I want to teach this again. We've taught this before. I've mentioned it before. We need to be careful that our words, though not mechanical, mere lingo, they need to be from the heart with total reverence for God. We pick up a lot of garbage from the so-called evangelical world and modern-day Christianity. One of them is, Lord, I permit you to do this, I permit you to do that. Different people have said that. We need to understand, God doesn't need any permission to do anything. Now, people are well-meaning. What they mean to say is, Lord, I, I yield my... See, that's a better way to say it. And it's not just a matter of 
semantics or whatever word you want to use, there's something behind that. When you go to the Pope, at least traditionally, people who see him as a man of God, as a representative of the Church of God, as the very mouthpiece of God, and they venerate him and he's decorated with all these vestments and when he comes on the scene, people flock to kiss his hand if they can get near him. He's held in high esteem. No one, not even the reporters who don't believe, will go and say, hey, you guy. Or you're one of the guys. They won't dare say that to the Pope. Why? Why is there, un- there the understanding? Even heathen people. Or to the bishops or the priests. Different people who are people of the cloth, so to speak. People who are spiritual leaders. Why don't they say, you guys? They have this sense of distinction. This is a servant of God. But we don't say that we follow the Pope. But for those who do, and even those who don't, there's a basic respect. There's a inborn or innate intrinsic understanding that he's not one of the guys. People wouldn't say that to Paul, the apostle. There's an understanding. People who don't have humility, they're led in a course where they're still full of themselves and they believe become equal to even servants of God. The only difference is they have a little bit more knowledge. That's about it. And they started the race a little bit earlier, perhaps. They got to see a little more of God. But the difference is not that much. So one of the guys, granted, not everybody who uses that terminology means any harm. No. But just like uh, a person that is in a crowded subway train and accidentally steps on people's feet, their toes, quite literally. They didn't mean any harm, but did they violate something? Absolutely. Are they supposed to apologize and be careful? Yes. So we need to be mindful of letting God help our understanding. And this word of permission The closer we get to God, the more we realize and we become humble. We understand God is awesome in all his ways. He's, he's totally other than us. He doesn't need any permission or anything. What we ought to say is, Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, I yield myself to your working. Lord, have mercy upon me that you would condescend to come to me, to my house, Lord, to speak to my heart, to do something for me. Oh, God, thank you. Look at Mary's prayer, Hannah's prayer, and David's prayer. You don't ever see them saying, Lord, I permit you to do this and that. It's a deep humility. Now, once again, we must say that not everyone who uses 
language that is foreign to the tenor of true biblical humility in awe of God means harm by it. People just don't know. But as I mentioned about the person who steps on people's toes in a crowded place, it's almost inevitable. Still, they're expected to learn to be a little more careful as much as possible, how much more in the presence of God. So, at the same time, God doesn't want an artificial kind of external reverential expressions and say all the right words and dot every I and cross every T to be ritualistic like the Pharisees with a fake external righteousness. You know, I'm doing everything right. You know, some people believe that if you don't put your hands together in a certain position, you're not praying properly. Not so. However, there is a reverence that people may be inclined to and their hands all automatically come together. We need to understand these things and see where we are in the heart, in the heart. Am I an arrogant person even in the presence of God? Do I not understand who he is? Am I growing and has God been gracious to show me? If the words I use should be in accordance with the fear of God that's supposed to be in my heart and everything must be done right before God because I want to show him he's in control, not me. That I understand that. And that I'm coming to him for him to condescend. That means leave his high throne. Stoop down and touch me. You see where I am at? Although the Bible says, let us boldly go to the throne of grace that we may uh, find that grace to help in time of need. We must never ever let that strike out or cancel our utter unworthiness and desperate need for his favor and acknowledge that he is at his own goodness mindful of me. So as we hear this word about humility over and over again, when it really sinks in, we'll actually tremble at his word. That's the truth. People can sit casually and open the Bible and have a cup of coffee or what have you and just cross their legs and say, yeah, let's flip to this Bible passage that one. Yeah, look, at it. isn't that nice? Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I wonder what he meant by this. A very casual. We grow. We understand. Wait a minute. This is a sacred book. Again, there's a pharisaical false religiosity where people take the Bible and kiss it a thousand times and put it on the dashboard in the car. You know, they put it in a high place in their homes and they'll decorate it maybe or make sure it's in a clean place. Why? It's a sacred book. But they have no connection with the book because they don't care to find out what's in the book so that they may fear the Lord and do what he says. And that's no good. But to fear the Lord and at the same time handle the book in a sacred way, that's commendable. To fear the Lord and at the same time, let the external postures and words and tone, everything come into congruence, into accord, agreement with what's really in the heart. That's a beautiful thing. Where inside and outside, what you see on the outside is actually what's on the inside. There's a deep reverence. There's an understanding. Ah, that's holiness. That's humility. That's reverence. Those are the people who will see 
God reveals secrets to them. There'll be a lot of people repackaging stuff. You can see them online and many, many places. They'll take what one guy said, oh, that's neat. Let's incorporate that into our ministry. And pretty soon they begin to market and they repackage it. And people just buy it up. Why? Because they are gullible. They don't want to really know God for themselves. They want to hear the latest thing. We need to be authentic. And say, Lord, I'm tired of fake. First place has got to go is in my own heart. God is original and he makes only originals. Satan makes counterfeits and duplicates that counterfeit. We come to a place where we're totally floored in the presence of God and say, oh my God. God, before the mountains were brought forth, as I read Psalm 90, I prayed, forever thou hast formed the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Before you have formed the mountains, the world, and the earth, for everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When you read Psalm 90, remember verse 12 is the pivotal point. That's the turning point. When we have the fear of God, God's wisdom will come in. We'll begin to redeem the time. All those things are not essential. See, the Bible says, not only that which is not good for my soul, in terms of it being evil, no evil should be in my heart, should not lodge in my house, in my tent, in my heart, in my family. No evil. She makes sure not one bit of evil is in me. That's why God charged Israel and Judah. He said, you're evil. What evil did they do? They were covetous, idolatrous. And they came proudly to God, saying words which showed arrogance and sometimes hid the arrogance. But God saw right through it. God so graciously said, just repent. Don't be fake and don't be proud. Remember who you're coming to. I'm willing to condescend to come to you again and again. But remember who you are, your dust. When people remember that, their dust, they'll be very careful how they speak to God. And also what thoughts they have in their hearts about God, about his kingdom, about his servants, all those things come together. They're one. You can't separate those. And to that measure, the fear of God will come into them. To prosper them. Redeem the time. First in your personal space, Ephesians, and also in how you deal with other people, especially those on the outside. It should not be a hint of pride or boasting, foolishness, wasting time, but ask God for the divine economy. Every word matters. Help me, Jesus. Every second matters. Just like a person will say when they take a test, in school, they sit there, they know. A good student will time himself or herself to know that I need to finish this section and that section, even board exams or what have you. They have a lot of time, two hours, three hours, whatever it is. I know, halfway mark is over here, whether the proctor says it or they time themselves, they know, I've got to pick up speed, i got to go back and finish that section, this section. Oh, we know all about that. When people need to get to work, for a lot of people, work is greater than God. They're very, very precise. They want to look good, make sure nobody says bad things about them. When it comes to God, it's negligible. We need to switch it around. Put God first and everything else will fall into place in the right way. Redeem the time in your personal 
life. Remember, you're not the master. Too many Christians act like they're the masters. It's true. They call the shots. I, I'll do what I want to do. This is my space, my time. What about God? Oh, I give God his props. You know, I read, I prayed, or I went to the meeting, or went to church. That's my time to wind down a little bit and do some things that relax. Remember this? It's not just that which is evil. It says not everything that is permissible is profitable. So when we redeem the time as believers, we begin to investigate every single moment that we use in a 24-hour period to see whether not only is it not evil, better not be evil. Don't let it be filled with dissipation. Don't engage in activities that will make you lose self-control or sobriety to any degree. But keep alert, vigilant, knowing that the days are evil like to redeem the time. Not only reject that which is evil and harmful for me, but also that which is permissible, maybe neutral, quote-unquote, but not to make me a fighting machine for God's army. See that soldier and the athlete? Every single thing is geared toward the performance of what they have signed up for. Come to Jesus with the Lord. Everything must be in line with the will. But instead of dealing with broad generalities and assuming things and saying the right words, we need to say, do I fear God in my life in 24 hours every day? But really thinking about him and how to spend my days wisely. His glory exclusively. This is the heritage of the Lord and his children. They're the ones that God said, I will hear what they speak. It'll be written in the book of remembrance and I'll make them up as jewelry on that day. They're precious to me. Why? Because they counted me worthy to rule their lives from dawn to dusk. Blessed be the rock. Take the word of God and say, oh Jesus, Help me to be a strong link in this chain of this church. One who's vigilant and obedient and loves you. Would rather die. I'd rather not exist here anymore than to be outside of your will even for a moment. These are, these are the prayers that have come throughout the centuries by people of God who God really counted his jewels and used mightily. They said, Lord, if I can't live for you every second of my life, every breath, if I can't live in a manner that's pleasing to you, that everything that is even permissible, that is not good for me, in my pursuit of holiness, the non-essentials stripped away, not just that which is evil, abscess and excess, but that which is just a distraction, a hindrance. Come to that point, there's a, there's a, there's a fear in that. People are afraid to give everything to God. They're afraid that if I really surrender like what I'm hearing, it's kind of scary. I don't know if I'm going to just like lose control and, and now everything's going to be without real love and laughter and freedom and fellowship with people. It's like I'm going to be very, very restricted. That fear is from Satan. It's like an athlete who's told by the coach, look, you need to cut out Saturdays and Fridays. You can't hang out with people. You need to get close to me because I'm going to train you to win the gold medal. That athlete's not going to start crying and say, oh, this coach is, he's just so restrictive. You know that man? 
he wants me to give up Fridays and Saturdays. I can't watch TV and I can't. Oh boy, what a life. I don't even have a life. You think those premier athletes complain to their friends and family, their parents or their children? I have no life. I have no life. Go drudgery. I got to go show up for practice and I got to stretch and I got to push myself to the limit. It's just every day is a grueling. I know there's a gold medal waiting for me, but it's just becoming so boring and evil. Nobody would say that. The guy who wants to make it to be the CEO stays extra hours and all those things and extra things and he's just consumed with that. Not saying it's correct, but he knows the trade-off. But Satan puts these things in Christians' minds a lot of times. It's scary to really surrender everything to God, put everything on the altar. I'm scared. What if I die? What if I lose this? What if I lose that? We need to know that voice is from the devil. God can be trusted. Oh, we talk about trusting God. Yes, some trust in chariots, some in horses. I'll trust in God. I trust him. I love him. God's question is, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than this? Praise God. 